Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod at a very somber time and a shocking development in the Middle East. Well, we've all been lulled into believing that, aside from political chaos inside of Israel, all was calm in the Middle East. And then, suddenly, all hell broke loose with a widespread, brutal, violent terrorist attack by air, by land, and by sea by Hamas forces against Israel. We've seen the shocking video of Hamas forces overrunning Israeli border posts, penetrating Israeli military bases, and pouring into Israeli communities near the border, killing hundreds of civilians and taking many of them hostage, including women, the elderly, and children. In response, Israel has declared war on Gaza, and President Biden has pledged Israel the full support of the United States. And so, overnight, The entire picture in the Middle East has changed, and we're involved in what could be a long and difficult war that will have a major impact, not only in the Middle East, but throughout the rest of the world, including Ukraine. To assess what's going on now and how this war might play out, we turn today to our go-to guy on foreign policy, Joe Sirincione national security analyst, former advisor to several presidents, and former head of the Plowshares Fund. Joe Sirincioni, welcome back to the uh, Bill Press Pod. Thank you for joining us uh, at a very troubling time mm. indeed, Joe. Thank you. I'm, I'm good to be back with you, Bill, and I'm sorry it's not under better circumstances. So um, several people have described uh, Hamas's attack on Israel as Israel's 9-11. Do you think that's a, uh, an appropriate analogy? I do, I, I, in, in more ways than most people might, might realize. It is uh, certainly an, uh, unprecedented in Israeli history. You know, more Israelis have been killed in the last couple of days than in any single attack in Israel's history. In fact, more Jews were killed over the weekend in Israel than at any time since the Holocaust. So this is a a momentous uh, 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 event, and it introduces the kind of shock and and horror that we experienced as as a nation in in 9-11. And in many ways, it's even a greater catastrophe for Israel because in proportion to Israel's population, Mm -hmm. the 700 or 800 or some people say 900 Israelis that have been killed Uh, would be the equivalent of around 30,000 U.S. citizens killed. So almost 10 times the the number of killed that we experienced on uh, on our 9-11. So yeah, this is a a, a momentous event, unprecedented, and quite likely to be a turning point in Israel's history. Uh, Before we get deeper into 
what's happening today, Joe. I have to ask you, I know you have family, you have friends in Israel. Uh, have you been in touch with them? Are they okay? They are, and we have been in touch. We just talked to them about an hour ago. Uh, they're in three different locations in Israel. Fortunately, in, in the north of Israel, which so far ha has experienced um, air raid uh, warnings, people have been staying inside. Some of my family have, for the last couple of nights have been sl sleeping in their safe rooms, which almost every Israeli um, family has right now, so a locked a sealed off room where they can get protection from both air attacks and presumably from the kind of personal terrorist attacks that we've seen. Um, but as of today, there is now starting to be some firing up on the northern border, not too mm. far from where uh, my mother-in-law is, for example. Islamic Jihad is claiming credit for attacking some U.S., some uh, Israeli positions on the border. Israel's firing back. So there's a high level of uncertainty and tension in the whole country. No one knows what's going to happen next. There certainly is no justification for the kind of indiscriminate killing we've seen uh, of Israelis by the Hamas forces. Was there any provocation for this attack at all? <laughs> Oh, there definitely was, and people have been warning about uh, something like this for some time now, particularly since the uh, the government of Benjamin Netanyahu took over earlier this year and appointed a series of extremists to very key posts, like the Ministry of Interior, the, the Minister of Defense, um, etc., people who were focused on um, basically forcing the Palestinians out of the West Bank and, and 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 purging, clearing areas occupied by Israel of Palestinians. And that's where most of their focus has been. And so you've seen an increase in uh, 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 Palestinian deaths. Last year was a record number of Palestinians uh, killed, over over 300. This year is beating that but so far. That, so that is... Apart from what just happened in the weekend, I think there was 237 uh, Palestinians who've been killed so far, mainly at the hands of Israeli forces and settler violence. So that's increased. There's been increased provocations up, up at the Temple Mount, the whole, a holy site for Christians, Jews, and Muslims, where militant uh, is Israeli, um, well, the settlers and people on the far right, the cons most conservative religious movements, have been trying to reclaim that area for Jews alone, and have been engaging in hostile acts against both uh, uh, Palestinians and Christians. So the tensions have been building all during the year, and there were some sources in the military, the military intelligence, warning Benjamin Netanyahu that there could be another intifada, a mass uprising. They were focused on the West Bank, but yes, tensions have been building, there have been provocations. So this did not come out of the blue. The scale of the attack, the success of the attack, the attack is unprecedented and un completely unexpected by almost anyone. Nobody, I think, saw this coming, but the fact that there would be a blowback to what the administration of, of Israel was doing, yes, many people were warning about it. Well, that's the other parallel, of course, the intelligence, the lack of intelligence, the in failure of intelligence, the other parallel to September 11. Yeah. I mean, this attack was very well planned. It, it occurred by air, by land, by sea. We saw Hamas forces actually overtaking these 
fortified Israeli border crossings, uh, penetrating inside of Israeli military bases, stealing tanks from Israeli military bases. How how that it's it's almost Joe incomprehensible that the Israeli intelligence would not know something was yeah. cooking, right? I mean, did they yeah. just fail to connect the dots? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Bill. I mean, there's indications that people, that there was intelligence about activity going on. So people saw it, but like in 9-11, remember when George W. Bush got that briefing in August, right before the attacks, bin Laden determined to strike inside U.S. There were warnings about this, but nobody raised them up to the higher level. Nobody connected all this together. So we know that Israeli intelligence saw Hamas doing training exercises for assaults, and but they regularly do that, so they dismiss them. We know that Israeli intelligence connected an increased level of activity going on among the Hamas cells and uh, meetings going on between Hamas and, and Iran, which is, has a long history of providing Hamas with money, training uh, funds. But nobody p- put all this together. And, and the kinds of tactics, nobody had seen this before. You know, paragliders, motor, yeah. motorized yeah. Um, yeah. parachutes coming in, carrying uh, uh, Hamas gunners on these little go-karts with machine guns mounted on them, uh, using drones to attack Israeli tanks. So some of those tanks you see destroyed, you think, how did they do that? They use some of the techniques that Ukrainians have perfected, using small drones to drop explosive uh, projectiles from the top down and hit the turret in its weak spots. So, and then, of course, as, as far as we know, there's still infiltration going on. So the barrier that Israel had depended upon, this giant wall that they had built along the entire Gaza border with a heavy fortified crossing points, that was breached in, uh, in many locations and militants were streaming through the gates, streaming through the tunnels, directly attacking the most heavily fortified gate there, a concrete and steel barrier. They blew it up. Mm. They they attacked it with rockets and then on the ground. Uh, the, the Israeli nation and most of us watching this are still stunned by what happened on Saturday. Yeah. I mean, we heard so much about the Iron Dome, right, which yeah. has been in place for, I don't know, over a dozen years. Uh, and, and you're right, that border wall, impenetrable is the word that was always yeah. used to describe it. I mean, billions and billions of dollars where I, I thought, I think we all did, that Israel had the the strongest security system probably of any country on the planet, right? Yeah, and And just that Iron Dome, you know, that's designed for short-range rockets. And most of the rockets that Hamas has are those short-range rockets, unguided, they're launched from from tubes. And the the Iron Dome is designed to intercept those. But there are two problems with Iron Dome. And one is like any missile defense system, it can be overwhelmed. So if you know that they could intercept, say, 50 rockets, well, you fire 100 rockets. Mm. And also the Iron Dome doesn't is incapable of taking on more capable missiles. And this is what Hamas has been building up over the last 10 years or so, longer range rockets, more powerful rockets. So from Gaza, they could target not just the uh, the cities and settlements on the border 10 miles away, 15 miles away, but Tel Aviv. Ben Gurion Airport, Ooh. you know, so this mm-hmm. is quite a reach they have now, and you saw some serious destruction in in Tel Aviv, which, again, for people like us who have been to Israel and seen this, it, 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 never, never 
was there this kind of uh, attack on, on Tel Aviv at, at any point, even during the in, Intifada, it was relatively protected. Mm-hmm. And to see buildings destroyed in Tel Aviv from Hamas rockets, um, stunning, stunning. Uh, I, I want to back up and ask, uh, kind of put this in perspective. How? Uh, let's talk about Gaza. What is Gaza? Is Gaza, how big is it? And is it a country? What is its status? Yeah, Gaza, after the uh, the 1948 war, and then again after the 1967 war of uh, Israel's independence in 48, and then its, um, its uh, war where, where that it won in 67 where it was attacked by several Arab countries, Israel pretty much just consolidated the parameters of its current um uh, map and, and but it, in addition to Israel proper, which had been drawn up by international agreement, it now occupied the West Bank, which is the land between Israel and the the, the Jordan River, the uh, and on the Sea of Galilee, and then down south, there's a, a little tiny area called the Gaza Strip, which is part of the border on the Mediterranean Sea with. Uh, Egypt. It is a relatively small area. It's about twice the size of the area of DC, so about 140 square miles, but it is densely packed. There are about 2.2 million Palestinians living there now, extremely, you know, uh, densely populated conditions. And and since the uh, first intifada, uh, it, it, it has been largely sealed off from both Israel, Egypt, and the rest of the world. Right, in fact, right. Hamas took control of that, was elected basically in elections in the early 200s, 2003, I think, 2004, I forget exactly when. And since then, Israel has put Gaza under a state of siege, so nothing goes in or out in people, goods, communications without the approval of Israel, which is why some people call it the world's largest open air prison. And Gaza and Hamas, so they are the elected leaders of Gaza? Yes. <laughs> there haven't been... This, the, the Hamas started off in the, the late 1900s as uh, a more militant rival to the ruling Palestinian uh, liberation organization or Palestinian authority. And, and some people in Israel encouraged this, particularly on the far right. They were picking up from the British who had ruled the Middle East for many years and their policy of divide and conquer. So they thought it was good that the Palestinians could be divided. So they encouraged this more militant wing to pop up. They, people were surprised after the the, the first intifada that uh, uh, Hamas grew in popularity. P- um, the Palestinian population became more radicalized. And in Gaza in particular, it won elections and voted out the... the um, the, the Palestinian Authority uh, in, uh, in, uh, in 2003, 2000, around, that, around that time. And it was that that then shocked the Israeli establishment and they became, became more worried about Hamas. But still, they kind of welcomed the idea of a divided Palestinian. So whether it's the Palestinian Authority, the more, right. what we now consider the more moderate faction of the Palestinians, they control uh, uh, the, mid, the West Bank. Hamas has ruled with an iron hand um, in Gaza ever since, and growing more and more militant over those years. And their their mission, right? On, is, isn't their stated mission the destruction of Israel? Exactly. 
Well, exactly. And, and, and they, they, they do not recognize Israel. They call it the Zionist entity, and they're dedicated to um, uh, pushing Israelis into the sea. So where do they get these weapons? Well, that's an excellent question. Some of them have been provided by Syria uh, in the past and by Iran. Iran is believed to be the main supplier of a lot of these weapons. A lot of them are being made in Gaza. There's a vast underground tunnel system in Gaza to protect it from, obviously, Israeli attacks, um, where they believe they have missile factories where they're creating these weapons. Um, And precisely because it's so difficult to get things in or out, they're making them themselves. They're making them themselves. So what do we know about the role of Iran in either providing or uh, the weapons themselves or providing the funding for these weapons that were used in this attack on Israel? You know, it's it's a little unclear, but but in general, um, Iran, um, Iran has had a very um, a strong relationship with both Hamas in the Gaza Strip and with Hezbollah, the radical um, uh, faction that, that operates out of, out of Lebanon, and has always seen them as sort of counters to Israel and their sort of protection against uh, an Israeli attack on Iran. They, if attacked, Iran has always believed that they could mobilize these groups to attack Israel directly. Um, strong connection, um, ideological, financial, uh, political. What's in doubt is whether Iran had a direct role in these attacks. In the planning, a, planning in the planning of the attacks. In the coordination yeah. of the attacks. And this is becoming a big issue. Um, in some ways, it's repeating the pattern we saw with our 9-11. Right after 9-11, you may remember Donald Rumsfeld, while the right. smoke was still yeah. spewing from the Pentagon, he blamed Iraq for the 9-11 attack and started focusing all U.S. operations on countering Iraq and planning to a war with Iraq. Similarly, some in Israel are blaming Iran. They see Iran's hand and think that they're the puppet master. U.S. intelligence so far has seen no direct connection with these attacks, you've seen a series of administration officials over the last couple of days saying, yes, there's this longstanding relationship with Iran, but no evidence that they were coordinating or planning or directly involved in this attack so far. That hasn't stopped conservatives here in the United States from immediately politicizing this, unfortunately, I think, and immediately going on to to push this crisis into their existing sort of security paradigm where, where Iran is the uh, the evil state that must be conquered, right. and so blaming Iran and also blaming the Biden administration. So you've seen the Republican Party almost to a person trying to turn this into an attack on Biden for being weak on Iran, for making a deal with Iran just a couple of weeks ago that freed American hostages. None of what they're saying is true, but they are every. You cannot turn on Fox without hearing um, Republicans on there blaming Biden for um, for the Hamas attack. Uh, well, of course, this crowd blames Biden if the sun shines or if it rains. I mean, yeah. you know, either one. But oh, I think what a lot of people don't understand, Joe, and, and maybe nobody can understand is So here you have this this tiny little strip of land and this group Hamas, which, which runs it. Uh, you know, as you said, I, I saw it's like half the size of the five boroughs of New York combined. Yes. It, 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 yes. Okay. And... Going up against 
the strongest military power, maybe outside of Saudi Arabia, but maybe the strong, probably the strongest in the Middle East. I mean, it is such a lopsided a field of battle. I mean, why would they do this? What they can't possibly, they hope to to defeat Israel on the battlefield. What what's what would what's their motivation to do? Right. Right, is this it's Israel insane, is not it seems. right? This yeah. Israel is not the Israel of the of the sixties or seventies. Yeah. Israel has got the most powerful military force in the Middle East. It, it is able to defeat any Arab rival or combination of Arab rivals right. in yeah. a war, which is one of the reasons there hasn't been one. You know, for for um, many since seventy three, there hasn't been a major war. Any attacks against Israel? Israel's just too strong, and that's not even counting its uh, eighty or ninety nuclear weapons that it has, right? So for Hamas to go do this to defeat this army to catch them by surprise, it's it speaks to not just the incompetence of the intelligence services right. and the incompetence of the the Netanyahu plan, which was all focused on the West Bank and was sort of thought that we had Gaza under control, we could ignore them, we could you know basically maintain the status quo, this this siege of 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 and of of Gaza forever um but it it also speaks to the um the 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 frustration the power of the Palestinians you know if you if you rule out any kind of peaceful political change if you rule out any kind of dialogue at all where are people supposed to go you know to address their grievances and people in Gaza are suffering every day and you, if you, all you have to do is talk to any human rights advocates, any you know UN official, anybody familiar with the area, and they would tell you conditions in Gaza are miserable. So you keep 2.2 million people in misery. Eventually, something's going to blow, and that's what happened. But why exactly now? We don't know, right? It was hard to get in their minds, but a couple of motives suggest themselves, and and one is to uh, to strike a blow to sort of peace efforts that have been going on, or at least diplomatic efforts, that mm -hmm. uh, in particular, uh, the possibility that Saudi Arabia might make a, a diplomatic recognition of Israel and Israel with Saudi Arabia, and in the process, basically uh, throw their Palestinians under the bus. This mega deal, as it's called, that the Biden administration has been working on for months now is almost certainly uh, one of the casualties of this attack. I, I think it's dead. I think it's going to be impossible to revive this. There's no way that Netanyahu is going to make any kind of concessions to the Palestinians, which this deal would have required. And I don't think Saudi Arabia wants to be in a position of seeing as betraying the Palestinians during this moment either. So that's probably dead. Another possibility um, could be that they saw that that Netanyahu was distracted. They saw the both the focus on the West Bank plus the massive internal divisions that we've all seen in Israel over the last uh, year since Netanyahu has start, tried to stage his judicial coup, and they thought they could seize the moment. Almost certainly, you know, this is going to elevate the status of Hamas in the region. I don't know what's about to happen, how successful the Israeli counteroffensive is, is going to be on this, the counterattacks, which are already underway. But in the, uh, in the Arab world, and, in the, and certainly for the Palestinians, I think many are going to see the Hamas not as brutal terrorists who murdered innocent men, women, and children, but as heroes 
who who delivered the greatest blow to Israel in decades. And it's going to be a source of, unfortunately, I think, sort of motivation or inspiration for many Palestinians. Ooh. So what does Israel do next? Uh, ben, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu immediately, not immediately, but said they would declare war, which they have. Uh, and uh, I've seen several military officials in Israel said that they've ordered now basically shutting down or locking down, doing away, almost uh, totally putting Gaza under total military control. Um, is that, and you know, Netanyahu said, that we're facing a long and difficult war. What do you see, Joe? I, I think Israel's making a serious mistake here. Uh, but let me, let's just first talk about what they're okay. doing. They, you could see Israeli officials talking about a complete siege of yes. Gaza. So everything, electricity's cut off, water's cut off, medical supplies are cut off, everything's cut off. This, by the way, is a war crime. This is collective punishment. It's specifically prohibited by the Geneva Accords. So you can't blame a whole population, 2.2 million, for what Hamas has done. Right? But that's coming in, if I may, that's coming in response to other war crimes that we've yeah. seen you know, right. on video. Right. Oh, 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 that's, absolutely, that's absolutely true. But it's a longstanding principle of international law, and it's absolutely clear on this, that war, war crimes committed um, by your adversary does not justify you committing war crimes in return, in, in return right? Yeah. So you, and but that that unfortunately is is one of the principles or laws that's going to be completely lost in this. You hear Israeli officials talk about a war without limitation. Okay, that's what the defense minister said just today, uh, and you can see it already. That uh, there's reports that as of um, well, Monday afternoon, Israel had already hit a thousand targets in Gaza with missile and artillery fire. Now, you can believe that these are precision attacks, and Israel is quite good at this. But there's no way that your attacks from this kind of distance with these kinds of bombs are going to kill just Hamas militants. Uh, and Israeli Israeli officials are already preparing the ground to say, well, you know. Civilian, this collateral damage is an unfortunate um, mm -hmm. byproduct of what we're doing. We don't mean to kill them, but they are going to kill them. And so what that means, and this is just the air attack. Almost certainly, there's going to be a ground invasion of Gaza because in order to get at many of these tunnels, buried targets, arms factories, you can't do it from the air. You have to go in. So we're looking probably at an operation that's going to unfold over many weeks that's going to result in thousands of casualties inside Gaza, um, hundreds, perhaps, Israeli soldiers killed, but thousands of not just militants, but uh, Palestinian civilians. And that is almost certainly to inflame the crisis. And this is what the Biden administration is now working on, trying to find ways to defend Israel, give Israel what it needs, but stop the escalation of the crisis for fear that it could result not just in, in massacres inside uh, Israel and the territories it, con it controls, but could spread to Lebanon, drawing in Hezbollah, which is, by the way, much more powerful than Hamas. Hmm. where Hamas has, has fired, we believe, somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 rockets over the last couple of days. We believe that Hezbollah has 100,000 
rockets and missiles. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, right. That could be used and bigger range, longer range, and would bring a whole other area of the country into battle. And also, of course, there's the danger of a direct conf- conflict with um, with Iran, which some people in Israel are saying, this is the source. We have to go to Iran. Iran must pay the price. So you can you can understand the feelings, right? The feelings of anger. We all felt them in 9-11. You know, when George W. Bush stood on that pile of rubble and said, they will hear from us, we all cheered. We wanted that revenge. Well, that is, you know, happening in Israel just at a much greater level. And this is the fear of the people in the Biden administration that it it might be uncontrollable. It might not be possible to control the escalation, but they're trying. Uh, So um, back to our analogy with uh, September 11, where the United States clearly did uh, respond, uh, uh, right, which was appropriate, but then did overreact going into Iraq, for example, um, right? Um, yes. We fear that Israel could do the same thing. Yes, respond, but but at the same time, overreact and create even bigger problems. Uh, Joe, let's take a quick break and come back. And we already, you've already uh, mentioned some of the wider repercussions of what's happening in the Middle East. Let's, let's uh, get into those after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. We'll be right back. Well, friends, here we are talking again about the world in turmoil. This is not a natural disaster, but a human disaster. And you know who's going to be on the scene here helping out as they always do, and that is Jose Andres and all those good men and women who work with him in the World Central Kitchen. They'll be on the scene, you know, providing whatever relief they can, and they need our help to be able to do it. Uh, We've reached out and asked you before to help the World Central Kitchen. Let's do it again. Keep Jose Andres on the scene, uh, helping wherever they can. And you can provide your help by going to their website, wck.org, wck.org, and sending them whatever assistance you can to Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I 
Well, we're back on the Bill Press Pod talking about war in the Middle East, which none of us expected just uh, just three days ago. But here we are in the middle of it now. Our guest, again, Joe Cirincioni, our go-to guy on foreign policy, uh, national security analyst uh, and former head of the Plowshares Fund. Uh, Joe, President Biden, um, within hours, was on television saying, we stand behind Israel and we'll give them whatever support they need. Did the president do the right thing? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. You have to stand with Israel here. I mean, whatever criticisms you have of their policies or the government, nothing justifies what Hamas has just done. Nothing justifies the the slaughter of, of innocence. I mean, just the, the slaughter at the rock concert alone, we think that 260 mainly young people were gunned down um, as they were just trying to avoid, ironically, a, a festival of peace, uh, they called it, in a location not too far from the Gaza border, the wrong place at the wrong time. Nothing justifies this. You have to stand with Israel. Um, you have to assure Israel that we've got their back. Uh, one of the repercussions I just wanted to, get, to uh, touch back on was this so-called mega deal, uh, which really sounded so hopeful, right? It looked like uh, after at long last, uh, Saudi Arabia might recognize Israel and reach a, a deal with Israel, which, which would also benefit the Palestinian people. You think that's dead in the water now? I do. I do. I was a critic of this deal uh, from the beginning uh, because I, th- I thought while we want diplomatic recognition between Saudi Arabia and Israel, the price that this deal would exact was just too high. One piece of that price was that it was Saudi Arabia's demand that it be allowed to not just get uh, technology for the civilian nuclear power program that it is starting, but that it be allowed to extend that technology to the enrichment of uranium. Something the whole basis of our criticism about yeah. Iran is that they're not just building reactors, they're building factories to make uranium fuel that could also be used to make the core of bombs. Saudi Arabia saying it wants that capability. The US has held out uh, against that for many years, but appeared willing to make this deal and give Saudi Arabia that technology. That would be a ma- massive blow to efforts to stop the spread of nuclear weapons. The other issue, of course, was the, the Palestinians. And if you, and we just had 20 senators last week write to President Biden, 20 Democratic senators led by Chris Murphy and Chris Van Hollen, um, arguing that um, that any such deal had to keep alive the two-state solution, had to have act measures that would address the conditions of the Palestinians in the occupied territories, and it didn't look like it was going to. So that was a problem. And finally, the one of the big issues is that this would require the United States to give a defense uh, guarantee to Saudi Arabia that we would come to their defense if attacked. That would be dragging the U.S. back into you know Middle East wars that we're still trying to extract ourselves from. So I was critical, and many others were critical of this before. I would say under the current circumstances, it is impossible to imagine that deal going forward. I don't think it would not, certainly not, uh, it's dead for this year, and I believe uh, next year too. And that's what I mean by this event is sort of transforming the mm-hmm. geopolitics of the region. Everything is going to be different after the uh, the events of October 7th. What impact do you believe the war in the Middle East, this war in the Middle East, will have on the war in Ukraine? Does it set up a, a, a competition for hmm. U.S. help going, going, you know, that some of the help that we've been providing to Ukraine will have to be diverted now to 
Could could be. I mean, to, there's to sort of two two basic reactions you could see. I mean, one, one is, um, you know, the the worried about the American public um, feeling that there's war everywhere, that the world's a mm-hmm. mess. Yep. And it's all too much. And that can lead to feelings of isolation. Let's just pull back. But that's one possibility. And I think you'll see that in various forms uh, ripple through the, the dis- discussions in America about this, both political and just people, you know, talking in their um, uh, diners about this. The other is that they could be linked together. And there's already talk about possibly the Biden administration giving a request to Congress for military aid to Israel and Ukraine and putting them together. The Ukrainians, interestingly, see that this way. There has been strong support in Ukraine for the attacks for Israel in lieu of these attacks, even though the Israeli government under Benjamin Netanyahu has made has maintained its neutrality, has not been helping Ukraine. Ukraine is doing what it can to to help Israel, so there may be this uh, this this kind of linkage that sees that, that it's all the more necessary to pull together both the the European the Western world on this to pull together to to stand up to the aggression whether it's Vladimir Putin or it's Hamas, uh, which means of course not a good time for Republicans not to have a speaker in the House right and. Not a good time for one particular senator to continue to up uh, to withhold and block military promotions. Yeah, Senator Tuberville's probably done more damage to U.S. national security than any single senator. Um, he's certainly in some time. Uh, it really is um, amazing that that our internal politics are such that Republicans are blocking the military from having at least you know from having three hundred senior officers confirmed into into positions. They're blocking us from having ambassadors appointed to key positions. Republican opposition has has blocked us from appointing an ambassador to Israel, for example. We don't have a U.S. ambassador to Israel right now stuck because senators are putting a hold on that nomination, uh, stuck in providing, blocking us from having a defense authorization appropriations bill. So it's it's October, the beginning of the new fiscal year, that Congress has failed to allocate the money for our military services. We're getting under, under a continuing resolution, still operating at last year's funding level. All of this is self-inflicted. Nobody's No enemy is doing that to us. The Republican Party is doing that to us. Um, I, it's... I, that's a longer conversation. I don't know how this is this is going to play out, but I suspect it's not going to play well for the Republicans, even though they're screaming at the top of their lungs that all of this is because of Joe Biden. Um, uh, it's very difficult to make that case beyond the the, the, the MAGA cult. I don't think many national security uh, experts see it that way. Uh, yeah, and of course, for the time being, uh, they have, uh, they're trying to do away with um, any support for Ukraine. They certainly have blocked any yes. increase uh, in support for Ukraine. I mean, isn't is I'm maybe I just don't understand this, Joe. If we go to the defense of Israel because they were attacked by another entity, right? Then why not go to the defense of Ukraine when they're attacked by Russia? I mean, aren't they? Isn't that who we are? Isn't that what we do? That is exactly right. right. When you when, cannot when, support one without supporting the other, it would seem that, to me. That's right. When when de- democracies are attacked by uh, 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 autocratic aggressors 
or in the case of Hamas, you know, just a vicious terrorist group. We, as Americans, we run towards the sound of the gunfire. We go there to help these people. And so it's, it's, it's extremely un, uh, unsettling to see a growing number of Republicans saying, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to let those people die. Not our fight. Um, I don't think that can stand. I don't think that's where the American people are. I understand that people are, that Republicans are making political hay. They think they have a winning uh, uh, argument here. I understand that there's a growing pro-Putin faction in the Republican Party. I just don't think it represents the majority of the Republicans and certainly not the re- majority of the American people. Uh, two points, Joe. You've been very generous with your time. Two points I'd like to touch base here before we wrap. And one is... Um, I, I've been reading a lot of uh, comments and conversation this morning um, by Israelis, people inside of Israel, very critical of Bibi Netanyahu uh, and saying basically the chickens have come home to roost. Um, he focused his, lost his focus, uh, made this, you know, got in bed with the far right wing extremists, even the military opposed what Bibi Netanyahu was trying to do with the Supreme Court. Um, and, uh, so how does this impact Netanyahu in the short run and the long run? And do you think, uh, he does deserve some of the blame? In the short run, Israel will unite, will rally around the government to, um, mm-hmm. repel this attack. There's been an unprecedented call-up of reservists, for example, to deal with this crisis. Many of them are, are people who had said because of Netanyahu's judicial coup, they would not respond to a reserve call-up. Well, they put that aside under this national emergency. So in the short run, there'll be a rallying. In the long run, I think this is going to bring down the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. And it has been a little surprising to me to see in the Israeli press how quick people have responded to this failure by blaming Netanyahu. And I don't mean just the left. Yeah, I I encourage people to go read the Jerusalem Post. I mean, their headline was, is this the greatest intelligence failure in Israel history? So they are very critical of this. And the the liberal Israeli newspaper Haaretz says bluntly that the disaster that befell Israel is the clear responsibility of one person, Benjamin Netanyahu. And they blame him for, for bringing incompetence in the government, these extremists we talk about, like Schmoltrick and Ben Kavir and key national security uh, positions for, for ignoring the existence and rights of the Palestinians, they say, and for focusing on ethnic cleansing of, of the West Bank rather than on trying to come to some kind of accommodation with the Palestinians, etc. So the, 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 the blame is already... At, mm-hmm. at very high levels. And this is while the fighting is still going on. You may remember that Yom Kippur War, you know, this, t- uh, this right. attack took place on the that, anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Well, well uh, uh, let me just jump in. That was going to, that's where I was leading with my next question, right? Uh, so pick up there because some people do see that, like the Yom Kippur War, this could in the long run be an opportunity. There could be a positive side to this. So pick up on well, there, well, look, right there, Joe. Right. But first, there's going to be a blame. 
Golda yep. Meir was uh, an extremely popular leader of, mm-hmm. of Israel at the time. Three years later, three and a half years later, she was ousted from government, blamed for this strategic failure. Many uh, people are arguing this is a greater strategic failure than yeah. what ha- what happened. Then it's, and I don't think it's going to take three years. It might be more like three months. Um, the, Benjamin Netanyahu, I mean, part of it is just this incompetence. Right. It's not yep. just that you made a mistake. It's a, that you you basically have, dest- have been destroying from inside the the Israeli military and intelligence and, and defense establishment the same way MAGA Republicans have been destroying it inside our country. And mm-hmm. I think a retribution is going to come, and it won't just be the attacks on Hamas. It's going to be cleaning house inside Israel. Do you agree? that the Yom Kippur, the disastrous uh, war started by Egypt and Syria 50 years ago, right? But it did end up with a treaty with Egypt, which has certainly brought security on that side to Israel. It, could this be this war be such an opportunity, present such an opportunity? It, it could be. And remember, mm-hmm. it also the treaty with Egypt and then the Oslo Accords, so the yes, agreement between right. Palestine. So this is, which Hamas, by the way, completely rejects. So one of your problems. But... But it does take these kinds of wars to make people realize that their existing security paradigm doesn't work, that you can't keep all these Palestinians imprisoned, whether in Gaza or on the West Bank. You can't create, in effect, an apartheid state and expect that to give you security and expect that to be a stable situation. Now, many on the far right in Israel understand this. Their solution has been to expel the Palestinians. They want to move millions of Palestinians from the West Bank into Jordan. That's their answer. They would like to either cut Gaza off and just give it to Egypt or expel the the Palestinians from Gaza. Or you now hear people talking about just killing them. I mean, it's very brutal talk you hear from some people in Israel about what the answer should be, what the response should be to this attack. But that is not a solution. That is not feasible. It is not going to work. And so you really, by whether you like it or not, you're forced into, into dealing with a, a political compromise, the kinds of things that led to the peace treaty with Egypt, that led to the Oslo Accords. And you could, and of course, you could see, depending on how this breaks down, some of the Arab states in the region weighing in on this. I mean, Saudi Arabia does have strategic interests in recognizing Israel, of coming to a new accommodation in the Middle East. Well, now the price for that is going to have to be real concessions to the Palestinians, r- real uh, expansion of their freedom and uh, and recognition of their legitimate right to live on the land that they've been living on for hundreds of years. There could be when the war ends, and it will end weeks, months, when that ends, there's going to have to be a new resurgence of, of diplomatic efforts. You already see people talking about it. And on that hopeful note, Joe that's a long way away, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's going to be a lot of yeah. death and destruction before we get to that but point. on that note, we thank you, Joe. We understand the situation, what's going on now and where it could be heading so much better after talking to you, Joe Sirincioni. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for all your good work. And we'll talk to you again on the Bill Press Pod soon. Thank you, Bill. And that's it for today's roundtable. Big thanks again to Joe Sirincioni, and thanks to all of you for joining us. Um, You know we'll continue uh, to talk about 
the war in the Middle East uh, this Friday on the roundtable with our panel of top reporters from Washington. And of course, we'll also be checking in on the latest effort. Republicans may or may not succeed by Friday in electing a new speaker. So the latest on that and all the news from Washington, D.C. coming next on the Bill Press Pod Friday with report of our reporters roundtable. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 